This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Technology never ceases to, to, to surprise us. You would have asked me or my colleagues five years ago if it was credible that somebody was going to launch shoebox-sized satellites by the hundreds and provide a daily revisit over any point of the globe. I would have said, yeah, come on. Hi, and welcome to EM Weekly. And this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. And this week we're talking about well, support from space. Satellite support for disaster response was always thought of something, you know, from the movies, something you see in, you know, volcano. <laughs> but anyway, today it's a reality. Uh, and this week we are talking with a group that actually supports satellite imaging close to real time uh, for emergency management. And I'm excited to have Stefan on with me today, and uh, well, let's get into the interview. Stefan, welcome to EM Weekly. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. So, you know, as we know, emerging technologies is is really key to some of the new way of doing emergency management, and obviously, one of the ones that really helps us out are satellites and. Realistically, we use satellites all day long, right? With GPS and through cell phones, through sat phones, things like this. What does it really mean to have these technologies in our hands as emergency managers? Well, I can really only talk about the use of Earth observation satellites with this, which is kind of uh, our specialty here uh, at the Copernicus Emergency Management Service. But oh, globally, I would say, Obviously, having the ability to communicate in areas where all uh, normal communications means like telephones and cell towers and Wi-Fi, etc., have disappeared after a disaster. Well, there, obvious, obviously, SATCOM uh, brings a very big benefit. Also, for search and rescue applications, the availability of a very uh, accurate positioning signal, such as the one that uh, can be provided by the GPS or the European Galileo um, system, which has even a dedicated service for search and rescue, where not only can you start a distress uh, call using Galileo, but you also get a message back telling you that your your call basically has been received, which is really something uh, completely new and could become a game changer in a lot of emergency management situations. But for for Earth observation, basically the ability to receive very quickly uh, information that can be used for situational awareness, that is key. That is something that the military has already enjoyed for decades, but in secrecy and with no access to this data for uh, the civilian emergency managers. And thanks to the availability of both commercial uh, Earth observation um, constellations and uh, mostly through the availability of the Copernicus 
program, which is a program of the European Union managed by the European Commission in uh, liaison with the European Space Agency for the space component, we have a fleet of satellites. Some of them you have to pay, the commercial ones, although most of the operators tend to make the imagery available free of charge to emergency managers and humanitarian actors in case of um, major disaster. But you also have a fleet of satellites owned by the European Union, which deliver data on a full, free, and open basis, so you don't have to pay for it. Um, and also, you have now dedicated services that provide maps, geospatial information to emergency managers, uh, also funded by the uh, European Union, and that is the uh, Copernicus Emergency Management Service um, that we are basically uh, running the uh, help desk and the uh, promotion activities. We were having a conversation the other day uh, regarding the things that we do regarding uh, GIS, how GIS is a game changer, and then going into um, the the use of artificial intelligence and, and data sets to make good decisions making. So the Copernicus, Copernicus uh, system would really uh, help out with that. When you guys are looking at this, the system, um, what are your thoughts as far as getting this into the hands of the local emergency manager compared to the military? Uh, well, uh, let me first maybe explain shortly how the mapping service of emergency management service of Copernicus works. It's basically an on-demand service that needs to be triggered by a so-called authorized users. But basically the public authorities of any country in the world can request the activation of the service. And in fact, in some cases, Irma, Harvey, hurricanes, for instance, we have been uh, activated by the U.S. Federal Emergency Management uh, Authority. So we need to be activated. And once we're activated, we produce maps based on the requirements of the end user who defines the area of interest, which defines the scale, which define the features that must be extracted from satellite imagery. What is it that we're looking for? Uh, and after that, after that is triggered, we order satellite data from private vendors or use uh, our own open data depending on the requirements, depending on the orbits, depending on the weather, depending on whether we need radar or optical, whether we need very high resolution submetric or if the 10 meters of our own satellites are sufficient. So we order satellite data and then we produce we produce geospatial information. We don't produce maps. Well, the maps are a byproduct, but very few users these days use paper maps. Um, so we provide a map, a PDF, a JPEG, but we also provide together with it a vector package, so digital information that can be ingested by any uh, well, most compatible um, GIS uh, software. And that, for instance, in the particular case of Europe, when we produce a map over a forest fire in Europe, we also deliver together with it not only, of course, the uh, extension, the delineation um, of the of the uh, of the fire, also when it's requested by the uh, user, a grading: uh, what are the areas completely destroyed, those partially destroyed, those potentially destroyed, but we're not sure from interpreting the imagery. But we also deliver together with it 
land use data. So you can superimpose them. So basically getting the data to the managers in the field is now doesn't really depend on us. It depends on their ability, those, um, those first responders, to access the data. So they need to have an internet connection of some kind, and they need to have a computer and a, a GIS software. But the, uh, the, the, how to get the data to the emergency responders to some uh, extent has become an issue on the first responder side, not on the emergency management service, which produces things and uh, they're available in, uh, in WMS, so web map format, they're available in vector data, raster, whatever, they're available on paper if needed, they're available on GeoTIFF. I mean, we deliver many different formats and um, it's basically, again, on the, at the end of the chain that the first responders must be made aware of the existence of the data and that is something we don't have control over. Like we delivered the data to the headquarters of FEMA in the case of the hurricanes I was mentioning earlier. What they do with it, they don't tell us, and we don't know, and we have no, way, no ways of knowing. We did get a very, very nice uh, thank you letter after, I forgot whether it was Irma or Harvey, uh, from FEMA and from State Department, but we don't have details on how far along the chain and how close to the actual on-the-ground, on-site relief efforts was our data used? Well, you know, that's that's a great question. I'm going to be up that area here uh, in middle of, of the month, and I, I think uh, I'll see if I can find that information on, on, on how that's shared out to uh, the rest of the rest of us. As a matter of fact, we're going to be discussing uh, technology in emergency management um, at this forum that we're going to uh, in the uh, at FEMA. Exactly. So that's a good question. Thank you for for priming that for me. How many satellites uh, do you have access to to create this data set? Well, I would say we have access to all the satellites that are available, which means we have our own satellites, two uh, optical ones with a 10-meter resolution, two radar ones with a 10-meter resolution, which are used, are being used, and can be used for many emergency management applications. It all depends on the scale uh, of uh, the maps or the geodata that the end user specifies, and it also depends on the type of disaster. Obviously, if you're trying to assess the damage from an earthquake or a tsunami, you can't do that with 10 meter per pixel resolution. You need submetric resolution, and this is available for private vendors. So we've got our own four satellites. Uh, we can use Landsat, but with 30 meters, it becomes a bit difficult. But we buy from Digital, digital Globe. We buy from Planet. We buy from Airbus, uh, Pleiad, or Spot, 6 and 7 data. We buy from Deimos Imaging. We buy basically from anybody that has the ability to acquire the imagery for us, which depends again on the need if the need is for uh if we're trying to look at a flood uh situation usually when there is a flood it, it means it's raining when it's raining there are, there are clouds when there are clouds obviously we can't use optical so we're, we're, we're confined to using radar and there we have uh, uh, less sources we have our own radar but again at 10 meter then we have uh, radar sat from Canada. Uh, then we have two high resolution one from uh, Europe, from Germany and France, um, Terrasa X, or we have the Cosmos SkyMet constellation uh, from Italy. 
So there is no limit. And we, we have access to everything that is available for sale on top of our four workhorses that are mostly, we have more than four satellites. We have seven in orbit right now, but four of them are basically uh, usable for emergency management. We call these, these non-EU missions, these commercial or, or third-party missions, we call them contributing missions. And we use them uh, every time uh, we have an activation and when we cannot uh, use our own satellites. Well, that's impressive. That's for surely impressive. How real time is this information getting down to the end user? And another very good question. The, 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 if you talk to users and collect their requirements, which is something the European Commission has done, we have interviewed hundreds of end users, either face-to-face, -face, through questionnaires, through workshops, etc., to find out what their requirements are and how we could best meet them. Well, if you listen to an emergency manager, he wants something on top of flying above his area of interest, the place where he's, interve he's intervening, and he wants that 24 hours. So basically, he would like a geostationary satellite that can see through clouds and beam video to him right away. That's yes. what they all are dreaming of, yes. or the ability to get rid of clouds. Uh, so... The big problem is that does not work. Um, does does not work technically because if you want to see something with let's say one uh, one meter resolution, uh, imagine the size of the telescope you would have to put thirty three thousand kilometers away from Earth on a geostationary orbit, while the um, Earth observation satellites we use are like in the uh, eight hundred to a thousand kilometers orbit range. So it's just not feasible. It's just not feasible. So the best we can do, we can only guarantee a time to data, time to information based on when we receive the satellite data. I'll give you one example. There was a big forest fire in Germany recently. We were activated. Mm -hmm. The forest fire happened in a former military training ground with unexploded ordnance and stuff like that, so it was a very tough terrain for intervention for the fire brigades. We were activated by the German uh, civil protection. Well, for more than 10 days after the blaze, every, every day, usually acquisition of optical satellites take place around noon because that's when the angle uh, of shooting is the best. For more than 10 days, every morning, we requested an, uh, an acquisition from one of our uh, contributing missions, we could never get one without clouds. So mm. at one point, the user, the user said, "Well, okay, let's just drop it." Uh, in so it's it's basically we deliver, we can deliver so-called first estimate products about two hours after acquis after acquisition of data. Otherwise, you're talking about six to eight hours. Six to eight hours is the minimum is the is what we guarantee we can deliver after acquisition. Well, I know I'm not after acquisition, after delivery, because satellite passes over the area, and satellite have to, has to beam down the data to a ground station. He might not be in view in a ground of a ground station for another four or five hours. When, he, when the satellite is in view of the ground station, it beams the stuff down. Needs to go to Digital Globe or Airbus or whoever who need to process, do some ground processing, and then they deliver it to uh, the what we call the, our rapid mapping team. 
So it really depends, although there is a global tendency to shorten those times. Uh, to give you an example, our Sentinel-2 satellites, so the optical 10-meter resolution family, of which we have two, they are equipped with laser terminals called EDRS. EDRS is basically, instead of beaming to a ground station, you have to wait that you approach the ground station, you beam to a geostationary satellite, of which you're always in view, and then the satellite beams down to the Earth. So that, that shortens the uh, delay by three, four hours in, in some cases. So we are shortening the amount of time required, but the limit, there was always a physical limit, which is, well, we don't get the image directly from the satellite to the room where the people are producing the maps. There is a certain route that must be followed, and that's one of the main uh, blocks, roadblocks. Uh, in further um, in further shortening uh, availability of uh, data response times, you're talking day, you're you're talking hours after availability, but sometimes there is just no availability, as I just said, uh, as far as the German example um, is concerned. So, assuming that the that the data is available, assuming assuming that um, you are able to um, get the data to us in in say a few hours. Um, is the information that we're getting, how useful is it for, for real-time planning or is this something more for like long-term planning slash recovery efforts more than, um, act activation uh, efforts? Yeah, it, it really, it really depends. It depends on the type of disaster. It depends on a certain number of technical factors. First, I'd like to say that we, under the mapping component, we offer two different components. One of them is non-real-time, non-rush non mode. It's called risk and recovery mapping. So we do deliver free of charge to public authorities, and not only in Europe. We do it for Nepal. We do it for Peru. We do it for uh, all, kind, all, all kinds of countries around the world. Maps that assess risk, exposure, and vulnerable, vulnerability. So there you're in the disaster risk reduction uh, side of the house. On rapid, on rapid mapping, uh, how useful is it to first responders on the ground? Well, again, depends on what type of disaster. For a fire, I would say the fire goes so fast, in most cases, unless it's a peat fire in Greenland, that by the time you get the data, hopefully the fire is extinguished. If it's a huge fire, like some California fires or like some uh, Arctic fires right now or the Alaska fires or others, then, then monitoring is useful. You do get the data at, with, a, with a time lapse that is not uh, sufficient to really use it operationally, but at least you monitor, you monitor the evolution over time. But let's say for forest fires and flash floods, uh, it is usually not for immediate response because the event, the water is gone by the time, uh, in the case of a flash flood, by the time the data gets down to the ground, to the, to the emergency manager, managers on the ground. But if you look at post-tsunami, post-earthquake situations, for instance, there, getting, uh, especially in large areas um, like in Indonesia after the uh, Palu earthquake, uh, and tsunami, when you've got very large areas in which you basically are trying to save lives of people trapped under collapsed buildings, uh, having 
having the information really enables you to dispatch your own search and recover and recovery teams uh, and the ones that came through international aid to stay with the example of the Palu tsunami and earthquake in, uh, in Indonesia. And then you can prioritize the uh, way you use uh, these uh, available search and rescue, urban search and rescue resources and send them to the places where they're most needed. Time, by the time you deploy a drone or a helicopter and you get a good overview of the situation, if it's spanning over hundreds of kilometers, it's a bit difficult. Uh, the, another type of disaster for which uh, the timeliness uh, is still good enough to be used by first responders on the ground is plane floods. Mm. For plane floods, uh, knowing the exact extent uh, is very useful for uh, planning dikes, for planning where to set up pumping stations to find out that some, one area hasn't been looked at and a helicopter should be sent to look if there aren't people that need to be uh, to be taken out of danger zone, etc. So it's really there again, a function of the type of disaster. Right. And that makes a lot of sense. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you about overlaying the, the information that you can get on a timely manner with historic data. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Well, welcome back from that quick break. Thank you all for, for listening, and, and please reach out to our sponsors because without them, we couldn't do what we do. So before in the break, we're talking about what kind of mapping and information that we get from you uh, can be used during during real-time uh, events. And got me thinking, can you take the information that you're getting from the real-time event and lay it over historical data to really make good decisions about how you're going to deploy your resources? Well, as we use standard, mostly open source formats for all of the data that we deliver in digital form, you can basically combine it with whatever else you have available, which can be ancillary data from a drone, from a local in-situ sensor, from physical measuring on the ground, whatever. It can be historical data. It can be complementary data. So complementing data such as a land use, land change, uh, the road network, uh, open street map, whatever, you name it. Uh, and there, the, it doesn't, it's the, what you can do with our data is not conditioned by our data. It's conditioned be, be with the format of the other data that you have, as long as it's compatible with QGIS, uh, QGIS, uh, ArcGIS, uh, any of the, uh, platforms for uh, GIS that do not need to be open source. And our data is also compatible with, with uh, commercial software. Um, so the, 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 the answer, I would say, is not on our side. The answer is on the user side. But we see more and more examples. And when there were forest fires, major forest fires in southern Italy, I believe two years well, ago, have, they have them every, every summer, but there were particularly big ones on the Vesuvio volcano uh, next to Naples. Uh, they, we saw some results of local work superimposing 
our burned area grading data with uh, national land use uh, data sets uh, to determine what kind of, what was the nature of the fabric that had been affected locally, forest, shrubland, uh, agricultural land, uh, whatever. So it's basically the, 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 number, the possibilities of combination of our data with other data sets are, are unlimited. Uh, from our standpoint, they are just um, limited by the technology and standards uh, at the, on the user side. I'm going to ask you to put your uh, your futurist hat on, your 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 fortune telling hat on. Where do you see the use of information like this and and data going? And then second part of it is, do you see a vast improvement in satellites going up there to be able to to give emergency managers and and planners faster, quicker, more accurate information? Well, that technology never ceases to, to, to surprise us. You would have asked me or my colleagues five years ago if it was credible that somebody was going to launch shoebox-sized satellites by the hundreds and provide a daily revisit over any point of the globe. I would have said, yeah, come on. <laughs> that's a joke. Well, that's what Planet claims they do today. So... With this whole new space uh, movement of startups coming up and with crazy ideas and they don't know it's impossible, so they do it and they succeed. Uh, and Planet has become a, one of our contributing missions. So <laughs> we, do, we do know they can deliver uh, usable uh, information. So you will certainly see a multiplication of such constellations, which will bring the more satellites you have, the higher your potential revisit time. Uh, you might have uh, soon maybe different satellites passing three days, three times a day over the same area and providing you, therefore, a picture uh, and a situational awareness uh, information three times a day. And that's something we don't have control over, but we see this trend. The other thing is we've never thought uh, that satellites can do it all. We have been combining, we have been conducting in recent years pilot projects using drones or manned flights in complement to our satellite data. In the case of the, um, of the earthquake in Italy, in the region of Amatrice, for instance, we activated that uh, aerial component because to really assess the damage in a multitude of small villages, old stones, old buildings, we really needed super high resolution. Uh, and we needed a lot of, to cover a very wide um, area. So we've already done that and we plan to extend this in the, uh, let's say a third generation of our emergency management service setup. Uh, and another potential big game changer is what we call HAPS high altitude pseudo satellites and these are there are different types some look like a zeppelin other looks like a balloon other look like gliders but they're basically something in between drones and satellites and in fact they fly in the area in between the airspace and uh the orbit of satellites uh, and these have the ability to be deployed quickly. Some of these models have the ability to loiter, to hover over a particular uh, area of interest and could, in fact, start 
uh, clouds permitting, of course, uh, fulfilling the dream of some emergency management, which wants something flying for a long time above their area and providing constant stream of information. So we see technology bringing more and more uh, new possibilities to to uh, to harvest data, and we also see these new technologies not being exclusive of satellites. It's just like the more the merrier, and it's just more data sources, and uh, you will never be able to fully replace one by the other, by, but by multiplying the sources and in, in types of sensors and in, in numbers of satellites, numbers of HAPS, number of drone operators that are deployable uh, on short notice, blah, 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 uh, you will just get a richer and more date and more timely data stream to first responders. It's all, it's all, I mean, emergency response in general is all about complementarities and team effort. Yeah. And I would say data provision to emergency manager follows the same general rule. You're absolutely, absolutely correct on that. And it's exciting stuff because at the end of the day, we want to use this information to do two things save lives and utilize our resources in the most efficient way. And I really think that the work that you guys are doing really helps emergency managers and policymakers um, make those decisions um, uh, quicker and, and more accurately. So I do appreciate what you guys are, are doing. We do get a lot of like thank you letters. I mean, when we received an official letter from the Department of State and FEMA in the U.S. say, thank you so much, Europe, EU, for helping us during these hard times with uh, hurricanes, this was really nice. Uh, we do get feedback forms from our users, and in most cases, they're very satisfied. Uh, we also are very active on uh, social media, particularly on Twitter, because a lot of this community, and I don't know about the U.S. that much, but at least in Spain and Italy, in France, uh, fire brigades and, and uh, even central national civil protection are very active on social media. And we do get from the community a lot of thank you, you're doing a great job. And in fact, it is, it is really wonderful, A, because our rapid mapping team works every day of the year. Christmas is on call. They work 365 days a year, seven days a week, and 24 hours in shifts, obviously. Uh, and so when a summer you've got three shifts working in parallel, people that haven't taken day off in three weeks, which has happened at some peak moments, it's really great to know that the users are appreciating and uh, are happy with uh, the products they're receiving. Well, that leads me into my, uh, my next question. If somebody was trying to get a hold of you guys or find more information about it, how would they find you? Well, the easiest, if you just go, if you just Google, not that I advertise for any particular search engine, but it's become a word in the dictionary to some extent. <laughs> if you Google emergency Copernicus, you'll directly end up, the first thing that will pop up in your browser will be um, the emergency management service. That's, that's one way. Uh, the other way is uh, there is a kind of command center called ERCC. Uh, for uh, Emergency Response Coordination Center. This is a European Union um, undertaking, and they are basically the gateway to the service. So they can be activated, let's say, you're in uh, Botswana, uh, you're a first responder and you need something, you just go to the, uh, well, you contact the EU embassy. 
uh, and they will take care of triggering the service. Uh, if you're in a European country, you contact, and all of these, uh, this, there is a, a page on how to use, how to trigger the service. It's not too complicated. It's just filling in a um, service request form um, and uh, getting this ERCC center to decide whether the request is eligible or not. A two-hectare uh, wildfire in a backyard in the middle of nowhere possibly would not necessitate deactivation of satellites. So we usually check that the request is eligible in terms of magnitude of the disaster, availability of resources, etc. Well, that makes sense, right? Because it's not a disaster until it impacts humans, and so uh, that that does make sense not to to use the uh, the resources just for uh, a well, it, large it doesn't fire. it doesn't have to impact humans. I mean, we just we just concluded yesterday evening an activation for Spain where in a semi-desertic area there was a wildfire that destroyed 1,500 hectares, but that area is a special uh, nature preservation area. No humans were around, but some high-value ecological landscape has been damaged, and that warrants an activation of the emergency management service. That's a good point. That's a good point. That was a little hyperbole, but but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's a huge, that's a huge fire. Wow. All right. Okay. So if you could say one thing to all of the emergency managers in the world at one time, what would it be? Well, I would say the service is there. Our motto is to serve. We're here to be used. Uh, Look ahead uh, of disasters, find out how to activate the service because uh, it's not that it's underused, but there are many instances in which I personally wonder why we didn't get an activation in view of the magnitude of the disaster. So maybe it's awareness, maybe people don't find the phone number, but again, if you just type in your browser Copernicus Emergency, you will find us. Well, guys, I'll also put that information down in the show notes so you can just click on there and save it to your browser because it's definitely good information. You go to that website, and I was on there. You, you, you tool around. There's a lot of lot of information there that's going to be uh, uh, definitely interesting if you're in this space. So, Stefan, thank you so much for your time this uh, this morning or this afternoon for you My over pleasure. there in Brussels. Um, and I do appreciate it, and maybe we can do this again sometime. With pleasure. At your disposal.